Right. Well, it is a great thing to have Pastor Ray here. And just to give you a little background, uh, in 1983, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. I had gone to Bible college and seminary, and a good friend of mine um, who actually became a brother-in-law, Tom Hudson, encouraged me to go to California and check out these things called Calvary Chapel. And I visited a church that Pastor Ray was pastoring. He was gracious enough to spend a couple of hours with me. And when it was all over, he said, um, wow, you're, you're kind of like a Calvary Chapel guy. And they were on the West Coast and they were surfers. He goes, you even surf? And he said, you should go back to your hometown, which is Gulf Breeze, and um, find a place, rent it, and um, start teaching the Bible. And I looked at Ray and I said, um, that's it? And he said, that's it. And so we started right down here in um, Oriole Beach Elementary School. And we've been around since 1983. And you can blame Ray Bentley for the whole. <laughs> but, but I want to ask you some questions tonight, Ray. And, and maybe first of all, you can share with us, um, how did you, well, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to the Lord? Well, uh, thank you, John. It's good to be here. Good to be in Gulf Breeze. Again, I, have, I was here a little while ago, and um, I, just think, I just have to say, I, I just thought this guy, he's like the coolest guy. <laughs> you know, I met this guy from Florida, and, you know, I'm from San Diego, and a surfer guy, and a beach guy, and he loves Jesus. I said, man, come on, you, you're one of us, you know. So anyway, how I came to the Lord, um, it was when I was about 10 years of age, and um, we had gone to church when I was, you know, around five. And I have two twin brothers that are four. And so I remember going to Sunday school and learning there was Jesus and a bunch of guys wearing robes all the time, fishermen. And, you know, so I kind of got the basic concept. But then <laughs> something happened in the little church we were going to. And my dad said, ah, that's it. They're all hypocrites. We're out of here. Which is always a tough thing, you know, when you're uh, a pastor like, you know, John and I are, and you fly somewhere like I did out here, and somebody sitting next to you says, and so what do you do for a living? <laughs> uh, I don't always like to go immediately, you know, but eventually, well, I'm a pastor, and they're, oh, and they're kind of, have I been cussing? You know, they're wondering what's going, <laughs> what have I been saying? And eventually they try to, they, they feel like they have to tell me why they don't go to church. I used to go, but, you know, hypocrites and all, you know. So I never knew what to say. So finally, one time, I just looked at the guy and I said, well, so, yeah, hypocrites. Then you ought to come join our church because one more won't make any difference. Because <laughs> we've all been hypocrites, right? All of us have blown it. So anyway, that had happened, my debt. So we're not going. And then we worked on, you know, Sunday I, was the worst day of the week for me and my brothers because my, we were my dad's work crew. His Sunday work crew, you know, the yard, millions of uh, weeds that we pulled and ivy that we trimmed and mowing the lawn. And, but if we, uh, you know, if we had done our chores, then Sunday afternoon, sometimes we got to go to a movie. And for three boys back in those days, uh, my, you know, we wanted to go either see James Bond movies or Clint Eastwood movies. Spaghetti, remember the Spaghetti Westerns? Those were the best movies. Two hours of cowboys, 12 words of dialogue. It was incredible. 
Anyway, but this one Sunday, you know, there were no movies uh, like that, and my mom, who's the only one hanging on to the Lord, said, oh, there's a Billy Graham film, you know. And we're like, who's Billy Graham? Oh, he talks about Jesus and the Lord and all of that. And we're like, ah, we don't want to do that. My dad's like, yeah, I, I got more work we need to do. And we said, no, we want to go see Billy Graham really bad. <laughs> so the next thing, you know, we're at this movie, and, you know, so hearing the, uh, the video that they put together, which I, I guess Ryan put together, that guy is good. I mean, he's good, and he, he got it all in there, even the coronavirus, which just came out. Anyway, so, um, but I was just thinking that, uh, you know, I, I heard Billy Graham in the, in the promo that Ryan did, and I'm thinking, so I'm going to this movie. I'm 10 years old. Billy Graham is, you know, he's young. Uh, he's tall, handsome, wavy, blonde hair, blue eye, piercing blue eyes. And always, the story in the movie always ends up at a crusade where Billy's preaching, you need Christ. Well, you should come forward. I hope you'll be saved. That's my best Billy Graham. So anyway, um, <laughs> so they gave an invitation, and I got up and walked forward. I was the only one that got up. I was the only one that walked forward, and I'm thinking, man, you know, later on, I was like, wow, all these churches got together. They rented the local theater. They put the Billy Graham film there. They prayed. They came, and then, you know, at least that showing, there was only one little kid that went forward and accepted the Lord, but I never forgot it. And from then on, being a pastor, I'm like, it's worth it if it's even one, because I was the one that got saved. So that was awesome. So, so you came to the Lord at a Billy Graham um, film to get out of Pill and Weeds. And, yes. and, and I love Sundays now. <laughs> and so how from, from that little boy to becoming a pastor, how does that occur? Well, I'll tell you, there's something that happened, you know, because then I got saved. Then me and my mom were, now we're the two Christians, and we're praying for my dad to kind of come back to the Lord, my brothers. And so we started doing, uh, you know, we started praying. And, and within a year, one day my dad's like, you know, I think we ought to go back to church. So we went back to church, and then they had, and the, it was a little Nazarene church, our local Nazarene church, and they had Revival Week. If you, any of you familiar with Revival Week, they bring an evangelist, and you have Revival Week. And there was, he was preaching the gospel, and I got to see my dad get up, walk forward, and recommit his life to the Lord, which he, from that time until today, he's now this year 90 years of age, still walking with the Lord on fire for God. So, uh, but anyway, I do remember that after I got saved, you know, about within a year or so then, uh, you know, so my understanding was I'm going to this little Nazarene church. I got my buddies, you know, by that time I'm getting into junior high. We have our friends. We have you know, our youth group thing, and most, a lot of the kids at school are not Christian, so that's okay, but if I live a good life, I believe in Jesus, then one day when I die, I get to go to heaven. I thought, that's it, but then one day, I'm looking at the San Diego Union, and big, giant, bold letters is the word Israel, and I'm confused. I'm like, Israel? I thought Israel, that's when we go to church and study about 2,000 years ago. What in the world is Israel doing on the front page of the San Diego Union? I didn't know. I was about 10 years of age, and it was 1967, and there was this thing called the Six-Day War. Now, I don't know about you guys, but, I mean, we, we are now into wars which have lasted decades, and here is a war, a modern war, that only lasted six days. How many would agree that's a miracle? It was a miracle. And so that's when I, so when I started asking around, 
that's when I first started hearing that there were preachers saying, hey, the Bible talks about uh, the Lord coming back. But before the Lord could come back, there'd have to be an Israel. And we're the first generation of Christians in 2000 years that there was such a thing as Israel. In fact, it's been so long ago, the last time there was an Israel, Jesus and God was walking on the planet through his son. So we're living in. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like, OK, I, if that's real, if Jesus could come back in my lifetime, I can't live a nominal, normal Christian life. I got to be on fire. So I started being on fire. I started to share with my friends, man, you guys got to wake up. You got to get saved. You got to know Jesus. And so that began burning within my heart. And, um, and I started doing Bible studies in high school, inviting my friends from the wrestling team and football team and my brothers and their friends and cheerleaders and everybody else. And year by year, I'm doing Bible studies. Then I heard about a guy named Chuck Smith who just simply taught the Bible. And when I was 18, I heard Chuck give a Bible study. So, you know, I'm 62 tonight. And that, and I, you know, I heard about Pastor Chuck. I'd heard about this big church explosion and all this new music and Jesus people and Maranatha music and all that. And so I went and listened to him. And to this day, I remember the Bible study that he gave. It, and, and how many of you, were, you know, I don't even remember my own sermons. alone. <laughs> But I remember that sermon because he simply went verse by verse. It was the Gospel of John, chapter 7, where Jesus said, If any man will come unto me, out of his innermost belly shall gush forth rivers of living water. This he spake of the Holy Spirit who was to come. And I just went, that's what I, I want to be like that guy. I want to teach the Bible that's on fire, but that's simple, practical. I want to be part of the Jesus people. And, and so... I ended up moving up to Calvary Costa Mesa, going to church, sitting under Pastor Chuck, going to the Calvary Chapel Bible School, and literally at 20 years of age, so I'd just graduated two years earlier, and I'd lived in a house ministry, went to the Bible school that they had, met my wife, Vicki, who is here tonight. Vicki, say hi. I know she doesn't like this, but <laughs> she's sitting over there. Uh, so at 20 years of age, I went back to the high school I had graduated from two years earlier, rented the cafeteria for like 50 bucks, set up. 50 chairs and started my first church so and and you know god put a fire in my heart our church's name is maranatha everybody say maranatha Maranatha. you know what maranatha means it means because jesus told the disciples when he left i'm coming back you don't know the day you don't know the hour but be watching be ready look up and be prepared and he gave us signs so i believe that we are very very close to the personal, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Maranatha is in the Bible. It's actually in the book of Corinthians, and it means, O Lord, come. It was how the early church greeted one another. O Lord, come. He's coming. O Lord, come. And it was also a prayer that you would come. So Maranatha. All right. So you're, you're a young 20-year-old. Is that what you said when you started a church? 20 years old. So you, you never... Uh, did drugs or got caught in that whole hippie scene and all that living in San Diego? No, I, I didn't. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I'm not the typical Calvary Chapel guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not. <laughs> A lot of them are my friends that, that got saved radically and all that. But I got radically saved too. And uh, so anyway. So you stopped drinking Coca-Cola and stuff like that. So 
so name the church of Maranatha from the very beginning there was this um, uh, thing about Israel and the second coming that just captured your heart and your mind and so would 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 you say that that's your passion in ministry what is your passion real passion yes uh, it, it is um, you know I <laughs> so Chuck pastor Chuck taught us because you're like okay how do we, you know how do I be a pastor and what do we need to do and he goes well uh, fellas, you need to teach the word. Simply teaching the Bible, simply, verse by verse. Start in Genesis. Go all the way to Revelation. Oh, my. Anyway, so that's my best Chuck Smith. But anyway, if you've ever heard him on the radio. So, so I start teaching Genesis. All right, next week we're going to be in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Read Genesis 1 through 3, and I'll share some, you know, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all the way, you know, the book of Revelation. And uh, so I don't know if you guys, you know, have read through the Bible, let alone, you know, I'm a young guy and I'm teaching through the Bible. You know what you notice when you teach from Genesis to Revelation? I don't know if you've noticed this or not. There's a lot of Jews in the Bible. <laughs> I noticed that, yeah. They're like everywhere. It starts, <laughs> starts with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, goes all the way through Jesus, and then all the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they're Jews, and the book of Revelation, the 12 apostles and the foundation stones and all the rest of it. So it's kind of natural that you go, wow, Israel is special. Um, and the fact that we are, you know, I, I don't know that, you know, because we're in it, you can't see the forest for the trees. I don't know that we can fully appreciate what a unique time in church history we live that, there's an Israel. That's a fulfillment of a 2,500-year-old prophecy. The prophet Ezekiel said, and by the way, a very prophetic Hebrew phrase, idiom, in the latter years and in the latter days, I will regather the dead bones and I will make the dead bones come back together. He saw a vision of a valley of dry bones. They come back together. They stand up. Then they get, you know, muscles and skin and hair and and they stand up, and we don't even need to guess to interpret it because God gives the interpretation. Oh, Ezekiel, this is the whole house of Israel in the latter years and the latter days. The latter years and latter days before what? Before the coming of the day of the Lord, the coming of his kingdom. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm on fire. So I, I've known you since 83, and I've kind of watched you and I've watched your involvement in Israel and your passion for, for Israel, and I know you've... Um, you were instrumental uh, several years ago in bringing Benjamin Netanyahu to Florida, and I know you've met him, been in his office, and you've talked to him about Jesus, and you, you in the last few years, written several books about Israel, the, the, and you're doing a, he's doing a series right now uh, called the Elijah Chronicles, and I, I've read the first two, um, one, the Mountain of the Lord, and then another one, Threshing Floor, writing them with uh, Bodhi, uh, Tanny on and she's um, you're co-writing this and it's all about even though they're f fictitious they pretty much paint a really real scenario of what's going on in prophecy and Israel and in the world today as far as uh, Israel and the coming of the Lord is that right yes um, a couple of years ago miraculously you know there there's no coincidences and miraculously Vicki and I had the opportunity to go up to Los Angeles and with a very special friend of mine meet uh, Bodhi and Brock Taney. So 
Some of you probably <coughs> have heard of them. Some of you maybe have not heard of them, but uh, they've been writing novels since the 80s, and um, they, they're kind of historic, uh, you know, prophetic novels, and, you know, they're best-selling authors. I mean, they, they've done very, very well. Uh, they've sold many, many millions of copies of their books, the Zion Chronicles and about the rebirth of Israel in 1948, and a whole series like that. And then I met them, and I was like, wow, you know, I looked up to them. You guys are like heroes of mine. And so then they, they got to know me a little bit, and um, I had this idea because I really wanted to capture our generation and the next generation with a story because there's so many more things happening now than even happened in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's happening, it's accelerating, it's exploding. And for various reasons, much of the church is backing away from talking about current events or prophecy or, uh, you know, various things like that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it's getting, it's never been more relevant and more powerful and more dynamic than it is now. So after meeting Bodhi, I had this idea that uh, I wanted to, uh, I have stories, you know, ideas in my mind about what's happening right now. So I said, hey, I know you've never done this before, but would you consider, you know, writing with me? Because I've got some ideas from prophecy, but you guys are good storytellers. And her husband, Brock, is this great historian. And they prayed about it. And they said, you know, we've never done a contemporary story. We've always talked about the past. We have not talked about everything that's happening and exploding right now in Israel and prophecy in the world. So they said, we prayed about it, and the Lord said, let's do it. So a couple of years ago, we started, and we came out with the first one. So this is a five, it's going to be a five-book series called The Elijah Chronicles. And uh, it's about a young man who doesn't, he's not into Israel. He's not into Bible prophecy and the Jews. His name's Jack Garrison, but he goes on a journey uh, of being brought into, he's kind of like a millennial, if you will, that's like, you know, prophecy, Israel, ah, nonsense, modern times. You know, I don't believe in old men with beards walking in the deserts thousands of years ago talking about the future is kind of his attitude. And um, but he goes on a journey where he meets this man in Israel named Eliyahu. Eliyahu is the Hebrew way of saying Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. We are living in the days of Elijah. And so basically it's a story where uh, prophecies uh, from the past start happening in the present. Uh, and it's everything that's going on right now. Um, so, you know, a lot of it is real. The stories are real. The miracles are real. What's happening in Israel is real. Uh, and it's exploding right now. So we've written two of the five-book series. The latest one just came out a few months ago called The Threshing Floor. And I believe that we're at a threshing floor moment for the world. Um, the thre By the way, if you don't know, the Temple Mount was originally purchased by King David, the man after God's own heart. It was a threshing floor on top of a mountain. So what that is and the impact that, it, that it's going to have, God is threshing the nations right now, using Israel, using Jerusalem, and he's shaking the world saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Look up, wake up. It's never been a more ripe time for the church to be awake and on fire than it is right now. Awesome. So when I was, I think I was out in San Diego or, or we were somewhere and you were telling me the story about Bodie and, and it was just this fascinating way that you met and you said, yeah, I'm going to write a book with her. And you sent me the first copy and I read it and it just kind of, the first one kind of leaves you a, a, 
in a hospital. <laughs> you're, you're like hanging on the cliff. And then the second one came out. I read that one. And it leaves you kind of in a similar. So I'm waiting for the third one. You're doing one called the Cyrus Mandate. Yes. Which sounds pretty interesting. The next book, of, the third book that will come out in September is going to be called the Cyrus Mandate, which I want to talk a little right, bit tonight right. about because it's amazing. Okay. So let's... Let's stop talking about you, Ray, and your books, and, and let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about um, Israel. Yes. So 1948, yeah. 1967, yeah. uh, tell us why that's such a monumental thing in our history and in our time. Okay, well, again, very, very simply, what happened in 1940 is a modern miracle. And if I may say this, Israel is God's sermon to the world. Seven billion people on the planet right now. And sadly, not all of them believe in the gospel or go to church. But God's preaching to them. And all seven billion people anywhere in the world, man, any, in any language, on any continent, they open their front page, <laughs> uh, you know, every other week it seems like Israel, Jerusalem, the Middle East is going to be on the front page of their newspaper. Uh, so it, there has never been a group of people in the history of the human race that lost their homeland, then were scattered to the four corners of the earth, then 2,000 years later came back to the original place from whence they came. Only, and by the way, the Bible is unique among all the other holy books in the world. It's the only book that God predicts the future. There's not prophecy in other religions. This is unique. Uh, and, and God is, you know, he has 100% accuracy because God is God. And um, so, now the Bible says, you know, Peter said, a day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So when you think about it, there was no Israel. Israel was a dead nation for 2,000 years or like two days. And on the beginning of the third day, God, in front of the eyes of an entire world, did something that's never happened in human history. God resurrected a dead nation. That's why Israel is a living sermon where God is able to just point to Israel and say, see how I can resurrect a dead nation after two days on the beginning of the third day? That is my evidence that I raised my son on the third day on the Easter morning. 2,000 years ago. They're a living sermon of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so true. I remember one time I had a, a sort of agnostic physician. I was in his office, and he was telling me, well, you know, every every group, every culture has their stories of how, and I, and I, and I looked at him. I said, well, yeah, they do. I said, but, you know, the Bible, I said, do you know the story of Israel? And he goes, yeah, I said, you know, it's prophesied they'll come back as a nation. I said, they did, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, they did. And I said, so how do you explain that? And he looked at me and he goes, well, you got me there. And, and, and it's true. Israel is a powerful, amazing, significant testimony of God's miraculous power. So let's talk a little bit about... Um, I was over in Israel in September. We had a group of people that went with us, and uh, we we were there. And they Trump had just moved the um, embassy from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem, 
and it, it's a phenomenal thing. I mean, we passed by the site where the actual land is, where it's going to be eventually built. And uh, what what do you think is significant about that? About that happening in our generation and our time? Yeah. Well, uh, I you know having been to Israel and we have many Jewish friends there, uh, believers, Jewish believers as well as Israelis, the impact it had on them. Uh, is far greater than even we can imagine it from here in America. Um, because w when the president made the move, it was on December the 6th, uh, 2017. You realize that Israel was basically created by the United Nations as a partition for the land of Israel beginning in 1947. It's exactly 70 years after they became a nation. Now, anybody that knows anything about the Bible, the number 70 is extremely prophetic and significant. Uh, Israel was in Babylon for 70 years. After 70 years, I'm going to have you come back. Uh, and so now, with the significance of that 70 ringing there, by the way, I don't, you know, some people are not aware that that, it wasn't a decision uh, initiated by President Trump. It was actually initiated by Congress. And it didn't begin in 2017, it actually was, it began in 1995. Our president at the time was President Bill Clinton. And it wasn't just one side of the aisle that said we ought to do this, it was both the Democrats on one side of the aisle and Republicans on the other side of the aisle. And they basically came in agreement and said we ought to move our embassy from Tel Aviv to the recognized uh, capital of the nation of Israel, which is Jerusalem. But they didn't do it. And the reason they didn't do it is because they said, well, you know, maybe, you know, there's strife and, and there's maybe there'll be peace that will break out. So they would kick the can down the road. I think it was every six months and not sign it and then wait another six months and another six months and another six months. And the next thing you know, 25 years goes by. But all of a sudden in 2017, President Trump does it. There, there is one thing significantly different about uh, today as opposed to 1995. In 1995, the United States of America was still somewhat dependent upon Middle Eastern oil. So if we made a political move like that, uh, then some could mess with our economy. But as of 2017, things have changed. And now the United States is not dependent upon Middle Eastern oil. There was nothing economically they could threaten us with, and so all of a sudden, we just made the move. And they said, oh no, there'll be war, and this and that, and nothing happened. So they made the move. And um, the, the significance to the Jewish people of recognizing Jerusalem, it's the, you know, America is the biggest, and by the way, I just want to say this about America, Let's set aside everything else. I am so thankful to be a member and a citizen of the United States of America. Can I hear an amen out there? It's the greatest country. Um, so anyway, having said that, uh, we, are the, we are the most powerful nation on the planet Earth. I mean, uh, our economy uh, is the biggest in the world. Our, our military is the best in the world. So when America says, we recognize Jerusalem, it, it is extremely powerful. And what it did to the Jewish people and what it you know, made their hearts feel is just unbelievable. So it, in some ways, caused them to recognize that America is on our side, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. So uh, 
what is going on in your in your thinking with Iran and all that's happening there? And uh, I, I know that um, you know we we have this uh, crazy political issue with them, and uh, so does the Jewish nation. So tell us a little bit about your viewpoint of Iran. <clears throat> well. Uh, so I need to, so once, now that we've recognized Jerusalem, um, now we've moved into a whole new territory uh, where I, I feel like um, now the president has submitted this peace plan. How, how many of you have heard that we've submitted, the United States, a peace plan, and that, you know what, he, what it's called? The peace plan of the century. That's what they're calling it that they're offering this, this peace plan uh, and beginning to roll it out. And um, we are living in some very, very unusual times, um, some, some incredible times of what's going on right now. So um, with that peace plan, they're, they're, Iran is against it. Uh, and, but there's another side, which is Saudi Arabia, and... Saudi Arabia said, you know, maybe, maybe this is not the worst deal. Maybe you guys ought to look at it. Maybe you ought to think about it and consider it. So what I want to share with you guys is, um, you know, there, there are two sides in the Muslim world. So I'm going I'm to just paint a picture for you as briefly as I can. There's 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. One well, so 85% of the 1.6 billion Muslims is Iran. 15% are from Iran. Now, Iran is getting very close, and you know we've been fighting this for several administrations. They're getting very close to getting nuclear weapons. How many so, of you are? So 85% is Saudi. So yes, 85% of the Muslim world would be Sunni, which the head of that is Saudi Arabia. So that's uh, Sunni Arab, and they and Saudi Arabia have Mecca and Medina. Those are the two holiest places within Islam. It, it basically, Iran, although a little bit more than that, but 15% of Islam is Shia Islam, and their headquarters is in Iran. But Iran is getting very, very close to getting nuclear weapons. Now, let me just ask you guys a real quick question. If and when Iran does get nuclear weapons, either by threat or by use, who do you think their number one target for use with nuclear weapons would be? How many believe it would be Israel? Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you, put your hands up, how many of you believe it would be the United States? Let me see you raise your hands. How many of you would believe it would actually be Saudi Arabia? Now, Actually, what we hear and what we read for those who are watching geopolitically, the number one target for Shia Iran would be Saudi Arabia. How many of you remember hearing recently about them sending drones to destroy oil fields in Saudi Arabia? Why? Why would Islam be against Islam? And we don't have time to go into it, but Sunni Islam has their own, you know, scenario and belief system and kind of eschatology. Shia Islam has their own. Um, but how, and the goal for Shia Islam, radical Islam, is to take over the whole world, right? Well, how can you take over the whole world if you're not even united within your own religion? 
So that's why Iran, their first target would first of all be Saudi Arabia and, and the Sunni Muslim world. Why? We've got to unite the 1.6 billion Muslims. Once we unite Islam, then we go after the little Satan, which is Israel. Then we go after the big Satan, which is Israel. So what I want to suggest to you Which is, is America, the big Satan. Huh? You said the big... Oh, I mean, yeah, the, the, the biggest... The, yes, the, the, yes. Israel would be the little Satan, and America would be the big Satan. So um, what I want you to understand is, and, and you can read it between the lines, those who read the headlines and the attitudes and things coming out, it, but it's, what we're reading in the newspapers is only the tip of the iceberg. But those, let's say, 1.3 billion Sunni Muslims... They feel like that r little red dot when you've got a target on somebody. They feel that red dot on them. And what's happening is that uh, Saudi Arabia, now that we're not tied to them through oil anymore, and we're a little bit, hey, do we have to police the whole world? They're feeling a very vulnerable and alone. And they're saying, you know what? We need a neighbor in our neighborhood who also has a target on them from a nuclearized Iran who already has nuclear weapons that could be on our side and protect us. And who do you think that might be? That's what's happening. And what, I'm, what I want to suggest to you is that what we're seeing, reading, and hearing, uh, for most of us, and through the headlines, is merely the tip of the iceberg. That iceberg is much, much deeper. In fact, probably you could count on one hand or less the number of countries that are with Iran that there are many, many more countries within the Islamic world that are saying, you know what? We need to cut a deal with Israel. We need to make peace with Israel. We could actually live with Israel. Iran says, no Israel, no Jews, no nothing, no compromise. And the Arabs are like, ah, maybe we could. And let me tell you another reason why uh, the Sunni world is more open to maybe allowing Israel to exist or you know, sharing or you know, coming together is because 500 million of them are Arabs. And Arabs have a father whose name is Abraham. They literally share blood, distant cousins, but with the Jewish people. We can live with these people, but Iran has zero blood ties at all. And they want to just take them over and get rid. So, these are some of the, these are, are titanic, Teutonic plates that are shifting right now. And so what I want to say is, yes, everybody has tried a peace plan and it's never been able to work before. What I want to suggest to you is, and I, and I want to be very careful because I, I do want to share a little bit about our president, Donald Trump, but not from an American political side of things because people get very spun up about that. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> By the way, if I, if I could say this, John, very conservative people look at Jesus and sometimes go, you know, sometimes he's kind of liberal. And very liberal people can look at Jesus and go, yeah, you know, sometimes he gets really conservative. So what I want to say is you can't put Jesus in a box. He's in his own camp, and he's got his own kingdom. He's got his own politics. And I think that we, the church, are on, we're with him all the way, forever and ever. Can I hear an amen on that? But, uh, but I do want to say this, and I think we, you would agree with me here. Our president right now has changed politics in our country in, in, a, in a way that 
is hard to describe. We're still in the middle of it. We're still trying to, and the Republican Party will never be the same. And for that matter, I don't think the Democratic Party will ever be the same. And that same guy has now just stepped into the Middle East, and he has made a peace deal. And the way he does deals is, they're, he's already, they're done in, in a lot of ways before they're even unfurled. He's gone ahead, and one of the first places our president want, went after he was elected back in 2016 was he went and talked to Saudi Arabia and many of the other Arab countries over there. He's been working on this for some time. So don't just say, oh, it'll never happen. There can never be peace. The Bible actually says one day there will be a peace deal that will be made when it's the right time. And we may be in that right time. And all that would say is we have never been as close as we are to the personal visible return of Jesus Christ as we are right now. Can I hear an amen on that? Okay, so so Trump is, is working on a peace deal. And, and I know that... Um, you and I had a conversation, I believe it was just yesterday, and we were talking about this peace deal and um, how God used a, a pagan king at one time to rebuild Jerusalem and bring the temple back. And, uh, and you, were, you were sharing some allegorical stuff about Trump, and, and you mentioned a coin, and all this <laughs> stuff kind of blew my mind. And okay. I had not heard any of this stuff, but yeah. it, it's focused on... Um, Trump trying to make a peace deal yeah. and how it is seen in a parallel way in the scripture. And I'd love for you to talk a little yeah. bit about that. Okay. Well, for, so here, uh, can, can I just share with you for about five, 10 minutes, uh, something you guys still good. You with me? Okay. I want to show this scripture. I want to show you a scripture. You can go home and read it. We don't have time. This is a big, long Bible study, but Isaiah 44 verse 28. In the Old Testament, Isaiah made a prophecy, and this is what it says. Isaiah 44, verse 28, who says of, this is the Lord, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. What I want to say to you is that this is 2,600 years ago. God prophesied through the ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah. And by the way, this prophecy was made with a king's name. He named the king. Your name will be Cyrus. And this is what you're, you're going to do for me because you're my shepherd, God says. It was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. And God calls this guy my shepherd. Well, Cyrus is the king who was the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire that, that overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And, uh, and, and God is talking to this. He's, he's not a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not a believer at all. He's an idol, worshiper, king, pagan, if you will. But why is God talking to him? Because he's, he's the most powerful man of the most powerful empire on the planet. But God says, but I put you there. I named you, and I've got a mission for you. You're going to rebuild my city, Jerusalem, and you're going to lay the foundations of the temple. What I want to suggest to you and, and have you think about tonight is that was not the first time that God has spoken to or communicated with supernaturally pagan or idol-worshiping kings. God spoke to Pharaoh. God gave a dream to Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh couldn't interpret the dream. You remember 
That's why Joseph gets called in. But God communicated to a pagan king. Why would God care to communicate to a pagan king? Because that pagan king had influence over two million of his people that he wanted to set free from Egypt and bring into his promised land. So God talked to that king. Later, God gave another dream in the book of Daniel to the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar. Talk about a heathen, pagan, idol-worshiping man there with an ego. There's nobody bigger than King Nebuchadnezzar. And God gave him a dream, and in that dream, he saw the image of a man where God gave him the outline of every major world empire, starting with him, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. You shall be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire shall be replaced by the Grecian Empire, the belly. The uh, Grecian Empire will be replaced by the Roman Empire, like two legs. And then there'll be ten toes coming out of the two legs of iron, like Rome divided between east and west. And those ten remnants, then a rock, unhewn from human hands, strikes the image. The whole image comes crashing down. That's man governing of himself comes to an end. It turns into a pile of rubble, and that rock grows into a mountain and becomes the mountain and kingdom of the Lord. So God gave to a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, the outline of history, including what we would call the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up of the kingdom of God. And then later, uh, his grandson, Belshazzar, uh, had taken all of the vessels out of Jerusalem to Babylon. He's mocking the God of the Jews. He's drinking from the golden vessels from the temple with alcohol and wine and debauchery. Ha, 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 look at me. And all of a sudden, on the wall appears a hand with no body, and it's writing words. And it shook the room. And, you know, meeny, meeny, tekel you farson. Uh, which he, but he didn't know what it meant. And, and the King James says that when... The, the, this king is looking at the hand without a body writing on the wall. His knees smote one against the other. He was so scared. And then in authentic original King James, it says he loosed his loins. I don't need to translate for you what that means. Now, from that, that's in the Bible. That's in the book of Daniel. And from then to this day, People have an expression they use all the time. They call it the handwritings on the wall. That comes from the Bible. And God, so the handwriting on the wall was to a whole room of pagan emperors and rulers and everything else. God speaks to them. But here's the deal. They couldn't interpret what it means. They had to get the man of God, Daniel. There is a man whom your grandfather knew who can interpret dreams and visions. And Daniel comes out and says, O king, let it be known. There is a God in heaven who knows all things. He is above all gods and over all your gods. And he reveals truths and secrets. And I'm going to tell you what this dream means. And he gives him the interpretation. And then he says, oh, Daniel, I'm going to honor you and bless you. But he really, he lost everything. What I want to say to you is that right now, in this generation, at this moment, I don't care if it's politically what's happening in our country, what's happening in Europe right now, what's going on in the Middle East, what's happening with the coronavirus, what's happening with locusts in Africa. I mean, everywhere you look, the handwriting is on the wall, and people are shaking. Nations are shaking. Leaders are shaking. 
kingdoms are being shaken because they see the handwriting on the wall, but they don't know what it means, and they don't know how to interpret it. But guess what? If you know God and you have his word, we have the key that unlocks all of that. So here's what I want to say to you. Here's the Cyrus. Here's something that probably most of you are not aware of, but I want to I go to the next screen. I want to show you something. Did you know that there's a, uh, and that is the coin. I want you to show the coin. This is called the Cyrus coin. It came out in 2016. Did you know that there's a reconvened Sanhedrin? You know, 2,000 years ago when there was an Israel, they had the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish leaders that oversee the, the kind of the rulership. And, and it was both from the left and to the right. You had Sadducees on the left, maybe Pharisees on the right, but they kind of ruled over Israel. In the, since early 2000s, there's a modern uh, Sanhedrin. Did you know that? In Israel, right now. Now, not everybody acknowledges them or agrees with them uh, because Jewish people have as many different ideas and interpretations. Some, sometimes they say, you know, two Jews, you could have three opinions. I mean, they're very independent. <laughs> but still, there's a Sanhedrin. And these are Orthodox Jews. So I'm not, this is not coming from me or Christians or trying to interpret prophecy or whatever. This is coming from Orthodox rabbis, Jews. And in 2016, they made a coin. And, and the man on the left at the bottom, you see that face on the left? That's Cyrus. The face on the right is President Trump. And above him is a menorah. That menorah comes from the temple. And they made this coin. This is a gold-plated coin. You can look it up online if you want. Some are in silver. I, I have one. Uh, my dad, got, I said, I got to get me one of these. <laughs> so I ordered it, or my dad ordered it for me for my birthday or whatever. And they are saying, Orthodox Jews are saying, we believe your president, Trump, because he recognized Jerusalem. Remember what we just read that Cyrus, you're going to do two things. You're going to help restore and rebuild and recognize Jerusalem. And number two, you're going to build our temple. So there's, there's the next, that's the back of the coin. That's the temple. And they wrote two letters. Now, this is going to get sound very strange. In 2016, the reconvened Sanhedrin wrote two letters, one to President Trump and one to President Vladimir Putin in Russia. And they said, we believe that you two are both to be like Cyrus, to recognize Jerusalem and give permission to the Jewish people to rebuild the temple on Temple Mount. And now they have this coin going all throughout Israel, and people all over the world are looking at it, buying it. And so you can look it up online. Uh, you know, the Cyrus coin with President Trump. This is what the Jewish people are saying. This is how they are interpreting it. And now President Trump is saying, I've done the first half. I recognize Jerusalem. I put my embassy there. I mean, I put my thumb on the scale of your approval of Jerusalem as your capital. And Jerusalem, by the way, is booming. John's been there. I mean, they, they say the new national bird of, of Israel is the, is the crane, you know, where they're building, 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 building. It's exploding. So and, let, me, let me step in here for a second. Okay. So, so uh, I'm listening to this again, and um, you're inferring, perhaps, that Putin... Trump, powerful pagan yeah. 
possibly pagan guys. Well, yeah, they're pretty much pagan. And well, um, <laughs> I make no comment on. You know, I, I'm just that, saying that, that they represent the Cyrus of a new day, yeah. and that they are going to recognize Jerusalem, and perhaps be involved like Cyrus was in rebuilding the temple yeah. in Jerusalem. Yeah. So you would say, well, why would Russia and Putin be in? you know, at all care about Israel and aren't they tied with Iran, et cetera, et cetera. Here's something that you need to keep in your mind in perspective. Um, the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and by the way, if you look at the numbers, how long, you know, from the Bolshevik Revolution and how long Soviet communism lasted, that's about 70 years. Like Babylon. And then it collapsed. Why? Because God wanted to bring God wanted to bring Russian Jews back to Israel, but they were not allowed. And the, all of a sudden, the Soviet Union collapses. And guess what happened? To this day, over a million Russian Jews returned to Israel. To the, so that means to, to a nation of, you know, they had like five or six million Jews in Israel. That mean, now they've got about 7 million. That means one out of every seven Jews in Israel today is Russian. So President Vladimir Putin has a big interest in Israel. He's actually been to the um, Western Wall. He was overheard by one of the rabbis. You know, They said, hey, uh, President Putin, we're glad that you are here. We want our temple. We want our temple. And he said, yes, I know. I'm praying for such a thing. So he's not against it. Um, so anyway, we, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is we're now living at a time, you know, forget the past and what we thought was exciting about prophecy. We're li living at a time now where Jerusalem has been recognized by the most powerful nation on the planet. Jerusalem is being built like never before. Tourism is going off the charts. They're now talking about a peace deal. And as I've shared with you, I believe this is the first time because of what's happening behind the scenes between Iran and Saudi Arabia on a grand scale, there's a big part of the Muslim world that is like, we could live with Israel. We could live with the Jerusalem being with them. We could even share the Temple Mount. I don't know if you know this, but according to the UN, back in 1947, it, it, it was written into the original charter that all of the major religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, should all have access to the Temple Mount. But right now, today, the only religion that is allowed to practice is Islam. It's actually in violation of UN law. Because originally, the UN said, no, it should be open all religions, Judaism, Christianity, as well as Islam. But it's not being enacted. So maybe like what happened in 1995, hey, we made a decision that we should move it, but nobody did it. And then all of a sudden, a very unique leader comes and says, well, you already made the decision to do it. Let's do it. The same thing could be done with the UN to say, look, you've already, it's already in the UN that all religions should be accessible and available. Why has it never been done? Let's make peace. Let's move forward. Let's get it done now. So all I'm saying is when you're talking about a peace deal, when you're talking about the temple and the Sanhedrin, by the way, has already chosen a high priest. They already have, because they said, we're ready. And they said, and by the way, they don't have to wait for the temple to be built. They said, we would be ready in less than two weeks. What we really, to get it all going, is to start having sacrifices on the Temple Mount. We could do that once given permission within two weeks. So what I'm, 
sharing with you is this is very, very exciting times. I've got one more scripture to share. Okay, so show Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, and I'll stop with this. So it goes from, you know, there weren't chapters and verses when it was originally written. So the last verse of Isaiah 44 is 28, talking about Cyrus. Now Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. The word anointed there, in brackets, I put the Hebrew word. The word went, so the Lord's still talking about Cyrus. He calls him his anointed. The word in Hebrew you can look up for anointed is Messiah, Mashiach. You say, well, wait a second, that's what we call Jesus is the Messiah. Well, the word Messiah means the anointed one. Jesus is the Savior who was anointed to save the world from its sins. But there can be other anointings, apparently. This is a governmental anointing that comes from the throne of God. You're going to do my will, and this is what you're going to do to bring to pass what I want. So what I'm saying is we're living in interesting times, uh, and we need to be praying. And I, I would say this is no time to be messing around. This is no time to be compromised. This is no time to be living in the world or after the flesh or not ready and prepared at a moment's notice, man. If ever there was a time to live wholeheartedly, on fire, totally surrendered, sharing your faith, living openly, unashamedly for your love and faith in Jesus Christ, it's this hour right here, right now. Amen? So, so God anoints a pagan king, causing his anointed one to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so we're living in a time right now when... We have this powerful nation, America, you've got uh, Russia, and they're looking at these guys as perhaps, from, from, from the Jewish perspective, that God may be anointing these pagan men or these men to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. Yeah. I mean, I was just there in September, and while we were there, or just before, I can't remember, there actually was a sacrifice that was done, mm -hmm. uh, not, not on the Temple Mount, but on the Mount of Olives while we were there, and it created quite a little stir. Yeah. And so things are just amazing right now in our world. We, we know that we have this uh, perhaps pandemic uh, Corona. uh, coronavirus, and you know, a lot of my friends who travel around the world are saying, well, we're not going here now, we're not going there. And my wife and I are supposed to be in Germany in May, and we're wondering, well, are we, I know you're supposed to be in Bangkok, yeah. uh, Thailand, not, and you, we well, don't we know what's gonna happen. Postponed it, but. <laughs> yeah. There, there's the locust thing, there's floods, there's the economy. I mean, just the other day, because of the coronavirus, um, you know, and the whole thing in China, our stock market, uh, as you probably know, dropped like crazy. There's all this political division in our country like never before. It's so polarized. I mean, uh, I watched the Democratic debate last night, and uh, wow, I mean, gee. Uh, I watched it with you. It I know, Bernie had his gloves on, and they were going at it, and... <laughs> Uh, you know, never seen two sides mo more po polarized in my life. And um, I think it's interesting. I mean, this stuff uh, with the coin and Cyrus, I, I wasn't aware of it. But what's going on behind the scenes politically with Israel, it, it's amazing. And I think it says to all of us that, uh, hey, look up. Uh, something's happening and... Um, Jesus is coming back soon. Amen. And, and I, I want to encourage you, as Ray encouraged you, to, to look up and let this message of the end times uh, be one that causes you to uh, be ready, to purify yourself, and to 
tell the story to all you can. I mean, uh, w next week we've got a guy coming, uh, Tom Doyle, who actually I met him through Ray. I met him in Israel. Mm -hmm. And then when I was in Israel just recently, I, I was at Caesarea Philippi and I saw Tom there and we reconnected and he just got back from Saudi and he has this amazing ministry to the Muslims. And, and Ray, tell, tell us a little, you know Tom a lot yes. better than I do. Well, I, I met Tom a few years ago and he's been going through the, the entire, you know, uh, the whole Arab world and the Muslim world and some of you probably know, but maybe some of you don't know, there's a revival happening in, in those places. In fact, probably the, <coughs> the tip of the iceberg of the, of the revival that is coming is actually in Iran. There, there are more people, they said we've never seen so many people come to the Lord as we're seeing in Iran. They're having dreams, they're having visions, they're having healings, they're having miracles, and it's from house to house. It is, it's a movement, it is massive. And Tom has those relationships and those stories, incredible testimonies. I mean, it's like right out of the Bible, literally out of the book of Acts type of stuff that's going on. So you'll really enjoy yeah, so it. You, you, Tom, Tom will be here next week and um, he's just an amazing, his wife will be with him, Joanne. He, he, she's part of the story ministering to Muslim women, but um, Thank you for being here tonight. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Ray for coming from San Diego. Uh, My pleasure.